So I wanted to do a couple one-off sermons to help us. Life together in the church. Jesus loves his church, gave himself for it. We ought to love the church, and so every chance I get, I'm going to preach on the church. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Today we're going to talk about confronting one another in love. Often this is described as church discipline, but I prefer to call it confronting one another in love. And by the way, church discipline, sadly, too many people only think of church discipline as excommunication. Really, there's, there's two ways of looking at church discipline, okay? This isn't original with me, but there's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. Okay, the formative discipline is something that happens uh, every week in every healthy church. The corrective discipline hopefully won't happen very often. Uh, I've been through it several times, not me personally, but I've been involved in the process of corrective discipline or church discipline, excommunication several times, and it's very uncomfortable. It's not enjoyable. Uh, but it, healthy churches, when they're doing the formative discipline every day of the, or not every day, but every week, healthy churches doing that can hopefully stay away from the corrective discipline. It's a bit like surgery, right? If you're, if you're involved in preventative maintenance of your body, hopefully you're not going to need surgery. But sadly, too many churches aren't doing the formative discipline. And sadly, too many churches are weak and unwilling to do what God says in regards to corrective discipline. But today I want to look at uh, what the Bible says in regards to confronting one another in love. Loving confrontation is one of the most important parts in the life of a healthy church. You cannot have, you cannot have a healthy church without loving confrontation. The primary concerns that Jesus has for his body, which of course is the church, are two things. Number one, purity, and number two, unity. You read the epistles, you'll see those two things come up more than anything else. Purity and unity. Loving confrontation will help us to be pure, and loving confrontation will help us to have unity. Neither of those can exist where the process in Matthew 18 is not practiced. And that's because the obstacles to purity and unity are sin and conflict. Sin's the biggest problem we have in our life, and sin is the biggest problem we have in our church. And so if, it's, if we don't practice loving confrontation, we're not, that means we're not dealing with sin, our biggest problem. So the disease of sin can't be cured without the medicine of loving biblical confrontation. Problems are never going to be resolved if you ignore them, right? If you have weeds in your garden and you don't like those weeds, they're not going to go away if you just ignore them, right? If you have cancer in your body and you just ignore it, it's not going to go away. You ever heard the saying on the screen here that time heals all wounds? Is that true or false? Time heals all wounds. A lot of people say that, but sadly it's false. That saying is false. Spiritual wounds can actually harden, become scabs and scars over time. Instead of actually healing, 
Spiritual wounds can actually get worse. Their harmful consequences will inevitably continue unless true healing occurs. You cannot expect time to heal spiritual wounds. The loving confrontation that we're going to discuss can and does perform healing when it's practiced in a biblical manner. Notice I said when it's practiced in a biblical manner. Now, if it's not practiced in a biblical manner, it can actually make things worse. And we're going to talk about that. So let's um, look at our passage here for today, coming from Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus said. These are the words of the living God. He says in verse 15, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fall between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's stop there. As I said, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus tells us here in this passage that the solution to our greatest problem, which is sin and conflict, and particularly within the church, is loving confrontation. And by the way, that loving confrontation needs to increase to whatever level is necessary to bring about change in our lives. You can see in this passage there's different stages where where the, the pressure, if you will, gets ramped up. And many people think it's unloving to rebuke sin in someone else's life well let me just tell you god doesn't think that on the contrary the bible actually teaches that confrontation is actually one of the best ways that we can express our love for others so consider the following verses that really complement this idea that 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 the relationship here between love and confrontation so this is not just something you see in matthew 18 okay look at these verses psalm 141 verse 5 let a righteous man strike me it is a kindness let him rebuke me it is oil for my head let my head not refuse it proverbs 9 8 reprove a wise man and he will love you Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then God says in Hebrews 12, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote here, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It's pretty obvious when you see those verses what God thinks about confrontation. He loves it. He knows it's important. So my prayer, as we look at this passage and other passages, is that we're going to actually truly believe that loving confrontation is an essential element of every healthy church. I'm not convinced that we all think that. That's why I think it's necessary we we look at this passage. I want this loving confrontation, confronting one another in love, if you will, to be just second nature for each of us. Just something that we do on a regular basis for one another. Now, 
Having said that, we need to be careful. <laughs> we need to be careful in this whole process because confrontation practiced in the wrong way actually makes problems worse rather than solving them. I'm sure you've seen that in your family life, in, in the, the businesses that you've worked in. When, when uh, employees confront one another or a boss confronts an employee in the wrong way, it's not helpful. We as parents sometimes confront our children in the wrong way. It's not helpful. And so you might be asking, well, <clears throat> you know, as, as uh, Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Well, the news for you today is, yes, you are your brother or sister's keeper, the Bible says, and it's quite clear from verse 15. I want you to see verse 15. I put it on the screen here for you. Look what it says. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So it's clearly implied there that, yes, your brother or your sister is your business. The other thing I want you to notice, notice I've underlined several pronouns and made them bold as well. I want you to notice the Holy Spirit here is using first-person singular pronouns. And you say, what's the point of that? Well, it's indicating that each member of the church is actually responsible to be involved in the resolution of sin and also conflict within the body. It's our responsibility, your responsibility. Okay? You, you can't say, well, it's the pastor's responsibility. No, <laughs> it's your responsibility. Jesus says here that if you know that another Christian has sinned, or if you have been sinned against by another Christian, then guess what? You need to confront that person about the problem. It's your responsibility. It's not right to turn a blind eye. It's not right to, to have a deaf ear to a situation that you know about. And so when we realize that it is our responsibility to actually talk with other people about their problem, many times questions come to mind. Let me give you a few questions we're going to address today, okay? For example, should I confront any Christian who sins or just those whom I know well? Should I confront every sin I know about or just the big ones? What should be my attitude when I confront? What method can prevent making the problem worse or making the person hate me? Because negative outcomes are often possible, why should I even risk confronting someone? These are the sort of questions that we inevitably ask when we address an important topic like this. So all these questions, by the way, and more, are addressed here and answered by Jesus in Matthew 18. The first question we'll look at today is, whom should we confront? Whom should we confront? Now, the kind of person that Jesus says that we should confront, if you look at verse 15, is what? A brother. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you. So it's, it's addressing the brother or sister. The term, by the way, implies someone who professes to be a Christian, identifies himself or herself with the community of a biblical church. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. Brethren in the Bible is, is a term that's most commonly used in the epistles to refer to fellow Christians. That's the kind of people we're talking about here, fellow Christians. And in case that's not enough information for you to understand whom we should confront, well, let's look at another passage that helps shed some light 
on whom we should confront. And, and in this passage, which will be on the screen, Paul is actually telling the church here to carry out the final step of discipline, which, by the way, involves putting this immoral man out of the fellowship of the church. That's the final step. Look what uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There's a couple important points here that we need to make. Number one is, notice Paul says the process of loving confrontation here, it's not designed for the people of the world. That's the first point. Okay, you're not to go around confronting, you know, all your unsaved workmates, your unsaved family members about sin in their life. Okay, that's what Paul's saying. The responsibility is limited to those who claim to be Christians and share in fellowship with other believers in a Bible-believing church. That's the context of Corinthians. And while at this point you might be asking, well, what about the unsaved people then? What do I do with the unsaved people? The answer is you evangelize them. You give them the gospel. You witness to them. Well, then you might say, well, what about those who call themselves Christians, but they adhere to false doctrinal systems? What do you do do with them? Same thing. You evangelize them. When they knock on my door, if if I'm, I'm able to, that's what I do. I evangelize them, if they'll listen. Okay? So are we clear? Who To whom are you to confront? Is it clear, according to the Bible? You confront the the professing Christians, particularly, especially within your congregation. This is us. All right, question number two. What sins should we confront? What sins should we confront? Again, we come back to Matthew 18. Jesus says that we should confront our brother if he sins. Okay, that's pretty clear. All right, you you don't don't confront your brother if he's not sinning. Okay, But what exactly does he mean by this phrase here, if he sins? Well, should we confront everything that we see in someone else? You know, even, even those, some of us can be really nitpicky. You know, you ever met that person, the nitpicky person? Everything, you know, in your life that they don't like about you, they tell you about it. All right? That's, that doesn't make for a healthy church. Doesn't make for healthy relationships, okay? That's not what God's talking about here. Uh, or, by the way, we're not also talking about only confronting the so-called big sins, as if God has a category called big sins. He doesn't. So the answer is that the broader scope of Scripture actually indicates that we should confront our brother or our sister when that person commits any action that is forbidden in Scripture and... You can't overlook it. Okay, that, that little phrase there, can't overlook it, is important. Because sometimes the Bible says that we are to overlook things. Now let me try to explain this, lest you think I'm a heretic. Uh, <clears throat> any sinful action, whether it's big or small, should be confronted if it cannot be overlooked. I'll explain myself here. The Bible, by the way, doesn't distinguish between serious sins 
and so-called minor sins. And by the way, the list that we see here is not exhaustive. Various sins mentioned here, not exhaustive, of course. By the way, the Greek word for trespass in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault or his trespass between you and him alone. That, that word fault or trespass in some Bible translations, just a, a general term for sin. However, only sins of action should be confronted. And, and, and this is important to remember because how can you judge another person's attitude? You can't judge another person's attitude. Only God sees the heart. So, so you're not to go around confronting other people's attitudes, all right? Only actions. And the next point that really needs to be made here is we should confront someone only when he or she acts in a way that's actually forbidden in Scripture. Okay? There are, there are some Christians that like to go around confronting others based on their preferences. <laughs> Wow, that, that does not make for a healthy church when you got people really judgmental going around with their, their hobby horses and their preferences and, and they want everybody in the church to be like them. Of course, not everyone in the church is like them. So, so you get people who, you know, th- their hobby horse might be Bible translations, for example. And they ride that hobby horse into the ground and they drive everybody in the church insane. You know, you've got to have the 1611 KJV, brother, or you're, you're, a, you're not a Christian. By the way, they don't have the 1611 either. Most people have the 1769, if I remember. Uh, you can buy them, yes. But, but anyway, you get the point? All right, and then, and then you get some people, you know, they think, you know, all women shouldn't wear pants, never wear pants. You know, and they'll ride that hobby horse into the ground, too. That's their preference, and so, you know, they, they're going to confront you on that. Well, that's not in the Bible, (laughs) okay? There's just two examples of preferences that we're not to be confronting one another on preferences, okay? You you don't play the Holy Spirit. The other thing that needs to be mentioned here is it's only necessary to confront sins that cannot be overlooked. 1 Peter 4, 8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins, so, if, I mean, think about this. If you and I took the time to actually confront every possible sin that we see in our, in our congregation, we'd have no time for anything else, frankly. We, we'd have little time for anything else if we did that. So let me give you some examples of sins that can be overlooked, okay? If you're thinking, well, what, what kind of sins can we overlook then? Well, here's some. Inconsiderate words and actions. Anybody ever done something inconsiderate to you? You know, just, we, every one of us have done something inconsiderate or said something inconsiderate to somebody else. We didn't mean to hurt you, okay? I didn't mean to hurt you, but I'm sure I have, okay? Love covers a multitude of sins. How about selfish oversights? You ever selfish? Every one of us are selfish, Okay? We have selfish oversights. Those are things we can overlook. Prideful thoughts that we express. We're all, we, we all have pride, and we express that in various ways. Those are just a couple examples of, of sins that we can overlook, if you will. Love covers a multitude of those type of sins. So how can we know then whether to cover or actually confront in a particular situation? Because 
You're saying love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus is saying we should lovingly confront one another. So then, uh, you know, what's the difference here? The answer is that growing in biblical love and humility is going to help you to cover more and more offenses. The more and more you grow closer to Christ, the more you're going to cover sins. Okay, you, read, you read the Gospels, you don't see Jesus going around. And by the way, he knew everyone's sins. <laughs> you don't see him going around confronting everybody's you know, specific sins, even though he knew them. Sometimes he would point out things, particularly the religious leaders. But often he would talk about forgiveness of sins, didn't he? What's the solution? Maybe that's something we should emulate. So biblical love and humility is going to help us to cover more and more offenses. Growing in biblical wisdom is also going to help us to decide what sins should not be overlooked. Someone has said that love covers a multitude of sins, but sometimes sin throws the covers off. That's true. So let's get practical here, all right? So if you're looking for practical help, let me give you three things that I hope are helpful. Again, these aren't original with me. I've read these somewhere a long time ago. But when there are certain conditions that, that can exist, and when they exist, it becomes actually unloving and wrong to ignore the problem. Okay? Did you hear me? It's actually unloving for us to ignore the problem sometimes. What are those conditions? Number one, if the sin creates an unreconciled relationship between you and the offender so that you think often about the sin and think badly of the person, then confrontation is necessary for the sake of unity in the body. If you just can't let it go, hopefully you've prayed about it. <laughs> but it, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is, is still pressing this upon you. Maybe that's something you ought to deal with. Number two, if you are not confident that the person is growing in the direction of Christ's likeness by regularly confessing his sin and working to change, then confronting his sin may be the only way to help him. You should pray for one another, but sometimes you might see something in a brother or sister and you've been praying for a while and that brother or sister doesn't seem to change. It's probably time to, to address that brother or sister. Number three, if you know that there will be consequences of this sin that will hurt others in the offender's life, then for their sake you should make sure that he has recognized his wrong and repented of it. Sometimes we just don't see it. We need somebody else to point it out to us. Question number three we need to address. How should we confront? How should we confront? When we know that God wants us to talk to another believer about a problem, then it's essential to approach that confrontation in a biblical manner. God has given us several principles of how we can help one another. Okay, I'm going to go through a list of several biblical principles that you can use so that we can lovingly confront one another. Ten words that represent biblical principles about confrontation okay and by the way the first four we're going to address actually come from matthew 18 then the others come from proverbs and other places okay number one how should we confront quickly first principle is confront quickly 
Jesus, by the way, here does not indicate that there should be any gap of time between the knowledge of the brother's sin and then the, the confrontation that is to follow. Jesus doesn't tell you how long. So, in fact, actually, you look at the Greek tense, the, the Greek verb there, the tense actually implies that you are to go, and go is actually in, in the present imperative sense, which means it's a command, it's not an option. And the other thing is present means you just, it's continually going on. You actually could translate it, be going. So while a problem is ignored, sin and guilt can actually snowball. And we don't know snow that well here in New Zealand, okay? So um, if you actually made a snowball, uh, that was something I loved doing as a child. I loved the snow. And and particularly on the days when it was warm enough for the snow to actually compact, you make snowmen. You can start off with a little ball of snow, and you start pushing that thing, and eventually it gets so big, you, you can't push it anymore. That's what can happen with sin, if we ignore it. It can actually snowball. It be, actually can become an avalanche and can destroy us in a church. So the resolution that God longs for will not happen until we actually go, and we must go quickly. Don't let it get worse. Don't let it fester. Don't let, don't let this little wound become something worse. So go quickly. Number two, purposefully. Purposely. Jesus says, go. And when Jesus says that, Jesus was saying that we should deliberately go to the person whom we, we know has sinned. What's the intention? With the intention of actually talking to the person about the problem. So don't invite the person out for a cup of coffee at some cafe and, and then shoot the breeze about everything else. <laughs> okay? Jesus says, go to the person with purposeful conversation you know about the sin address it in a loving way it's probably a good idea to set up a a time by the way to talk to that person i wouldn't necessarily recommend just dropping by unannounced that's probably not the best idea number three verbally so we do it quickly purposely and then also verbally it's pretty clear from our passage here jesus says tell him his fault tell him it means you do it verbally so the idea is we're to convince people of something through words. Don't use sign language. Okay, I wouldn't recommend email. Con- confront the person face to face. Okay, very easy to misinterpret things through email or even written letters, snail mail. Okay, I suggest you do it through face to face conversation, so people can see your facial gestures, uh, your your eyeballs. Okay. You speak a lot with your eyeballs and facial gestures and hand gestures, right? Body language is important. Number four, do it privately. Do it privately. Okay? For example, I wouldn't recommend when we have tea time, for example, you know, you you got ten people talking in the kitchen back there and and just say, hey, uh, excuse me, I'd like to talk to you about your sin. And then all ten people in the kitchen hear your conversation. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure their conversations would end and they would, ooh, somebody wants... <laughs> no, I wouldn't recommend that. The confrontation, it says here, Jesus says it's between one-on-one conversation. And by the way, there's two good reasons for this. Number one, it may prove to be just a misunderstanding. 
Okay? You need to be aware of that. It could be a misunderstanding. You could be misinterpreting a situation or words or whatever. And also, the other thing is the sinning brother may actually repent. Okay, so those are two good reasons to do it one-on-one. So, if you tell other people about the problem before you actually go to the person, what are you doing? You're gossiping. And by the way, gossip is sin. Okay, so beware. Number five, do it reluctantly. So you do it quickly, purposely, verbally, privately, and number five, reluctantly. Okay, confrontation should not be something that you're excited about. If you're excited about it, you're, you're just dying to go and talk to someone about their sin, then you probably have a problem. Okay? You need to pray about that before going and talking to that person. In fact, here's what the Bible says. Look, look at these. Proverbs 17, 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. Do you love strife? I, I don't. Proverbs 23, uh, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. So th- this isn't something that we should love or desire in our life. <laughs> so our attitude should be like the Apostle Paul when he actually had to confront sin in, in the church at Corinth. I want you to see his attitude in 2 Corinthians 2.4 here. Paul says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So when Paul addressed the sin, he confronted, he did it out of love. He did it with affliction, anguish, and tears, and pain. He wasn't looking forward to that. So it would be a good idea to actually express our reluctance when we, when we go and talk to someone. and Maybe, maybe even say, you know, hey, I, I want you to know that this is not something that I enjoy doing. Okay? When you go and conf- confront someone, let them see your heart in it. You want them to see that this is something that's painful for you. Uh, maybe you can even use humor. Humor is sometimes good to help people see our heart in a, in a difficult conversation. You might say something like, you know, I'd rather be at the dentist than be here telling you this. Number six, do it compassionately. If you have to confront someone, do it compassionately. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend is willing to confront, even if it means wounding that friend for his good. By the way, often people are more willing to to take a hard conversation of confrontation if they know that you actually care about them. You know, if you have a if you already have an established relationship, isn't it easier? I mean, my, when my wife confronts me with my sin, that's much easier than somebody whom I don't know. I know that she loves me. Okay, so so just be aware of that. Show show some concern to everybody in the body so that when the confrontation is needed, that person already knows you you care. And number seven, do it gently. If you have to confront, do it gently. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
So we need to realize that, as it says here, a Christian that is caught in a sin is in a very precarious situation. And if we don't handle it in a spirit of gentleness, we can actually do more damage than has already been done. So we need to be aware of that. In fact, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Number eight, we need to do it humbly. We need to do it humbly. This is a danger we all need to avoid. Okay? The reality is we could become proud. Very easy for us to see sin in someone else and not seeing it in ourselves, which is why Jesus said, you know, <clears throat> take the tree out of your eye before you take the little speck out of the other person's eye. All right? Pray. <laughs> if you have to confront someone, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the trees in your eye first. Very easy for us to become proud. We, we tend to look down on people and not see the problem from their perspective. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. God says, if you only want to go around expressing your opinion, you're a fool, without trying to understand ahead of time. So a good way to begin a, converse, or a confrontation is often by asking questions then, right? Questions will help you to understand, instead of you just going in, you know, with, with guns blazing, you know, in the old Western movies, you know, before I get shot, man, I'm coming in with both, both guns blazing away. Well, we, we do that with our words sometimes. Number nine, do it carefully. Do it carefully. Confrontation necessarily involves words, and, and guess what? Words can either heal or hurt. They can heal or hurt. And so when you speak, guess what? You can't take back what you said. Once it comes out of your mouth, it's gone for good. <laughs> You can't hit, you don't have the, the mute button or the, the reverse button, right, on the, on the control of your mouth. That doesn't exist. So Proverbs 10, 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust. Eey, that would hurt. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. So choose your words carefully. Of course, you need to pray ahead of time. You need to think. You need to plan what you're going to say if you have to confront someone. Number 10 is do it prayerfully. We just talked about that, okay? So do it prayerfully. Bathe the confrontation in prayer. Walk in the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Our fourth question that needs to be addressed is why should we confront? Because we don't like this, do we? I don't think any of us enjoy this. I certainly don't. Jesus, by the way, knew the disciples' sinful flesh, so he reminded them of the benefits here of loving confrontation. Did you see what he said at the end of verse 15? He says, he says at the end of verse 15, If he hears you, what happens? You have gained your brother. So this verse gives us the goal here, really, of biblical confrontation. You say, well, okay, I don't get it. What, what is the goal of biblical confrontation? The goal is restoration. Restoration. The, 
your relationship between you and that brother or sister has been, has been hindered by sin. So confrontation of that sin is going to restore. Well, sadly, confrontation does not always work out so well, does it? If you've had to do that, you know it doesn't always work so well. So what do we do when the sinning brother's unrepentant then? Okay, you, you've, you've gone, you, 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 as far as you know, you've done it in the right way, but this brother in Christ, the sister, does not repent of their sin. Then what? Well, I'm glad you asked. Glad you asked. Because verse 16 gives us the answer. Look at verse 16. Jesus says in verse 16, But if he will not hear, you take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So notice the next stage here. Okay? So don't think of church discipline as only the final stage, the excommunication part. Okay, Because verse 15 is also church discipline. The one-on-one stuff is also discipline, confronting one another in love. So it's important here to understand exactly who Jesus is talking about here by the one or two more. He says to take one or two more. They're needed in this situation. So who is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about? The one or two more are only needed, by the way, if the first step is not successful. Okay, did you hear me? So when you confront someone, it's just you with someone else. You don't gang up on that person by taking, you know, a couple more people with you the first time. So this is on the second stage is only needed if the first stage doesn't work. So if you believe the problem's still unresolved, then you go and get one or two more other people to go with you. Well, what roles do the one or two more play? That's our sixth question. What roles do they play? Well, Matthew 18 indicates that there's actually two purposes for involving additional people in the process. Number one, the first purpose is actually found at the end of verse 16 there. It says that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Well, this helps us here then to eliminate any possibilities of someone being convicted on the basis of a false accusation none of us like that so it's important that in order not to have the false accusations that there be other witnesses and number two the second purpose for the one or two more actually revealed in verse 17 it's actually revealed in verse 17 it says and if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church but if he refuses even to hear the church let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So here, they're uh, uh, pictured as attempting to admonish the sinning brother. And their purpose is what? What's their purpose? Their purpose is lovingly to confront whomever may be at fault. That's the purpose of the one or two more. Lovingly confront whomever may be at fault. And may I remind you, if someone in the congregation actually asked you to come along to be the one or two more, you need to remember that usually both parties are the problem. Okay, be, be aware of that. If you're getting dragged into a situation, whether you know about it or not, if you're the one or two more, probably both parties are, at, are sinning. Okay? And so you need, you need to have your eyes open to that. 
In fact, here's what uh, J. Adams said in his book, Handbook of Church Discipline. I quote, The witnesses are not merely witnesses. They are first counselors who seek to reunite the two estranged parties. That is indicated in the words, If he refuses to listen to them. They are pictured as actively participating in the reconciliation process. It is when the refusal takes place, and only then, that they turn into witnesses. They do not appear as witnesses in this informal stage to whom, they would, they, to whom would they witness. They will become witnesses if and when the matter is formally brought before the church. Paul makes it clear that issues may not be entertained by the church unless witnesses are present. Question number seven. What kind of people should the one or two more be? If you're asked, for example, to be the one or two more to go and confront someone in love, how do you know if you are qualified to be that one or two more? Well, Jesus doesn't answer this question directly for us here in Matthew 18, but the Scriptures do help us. And basically, the Scriptures tell us that in order to be involved in the one or two more, you need to be qualified, number two, serious, and number three, objective. Okay? Qualified, serious, and objective. All right? Uh, if those three are you, then you're qualified. All right? So let me talk about these. Number one, the one or two more should be qualified to counsel both parties and to participate in a restoration process if necessary. Galatians 6 1 makes that quite clear. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So Galatians 6.1 says it's the ones who are spiritual that are involved in the process. You say, well, who are the spiritual people? Spiritual people are those, according to the context of, of Galatians, well, just back up to the previous chapter. What happens in, at the end of Galatians 5? Galatians 5 is all about the sins of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit, right? Of course it is. And so we need to look at the context, because Galatians 6 is, of course, coming right after Galatians 5. So spiritual people are those who have this working knowledge of the Bible and, of course, walking in the Spirit rather than the flesh. Look at Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So according to the context, who is a spiritual person? One who is walking in the Spirit, or by the Spirit, evidencing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Second, those who are asked to help in the process of loving confrontation must also be very serious about their involvement in that confrontation. Okay, You're not to enter into that lightly. <laughs> Don't take it lightly. And then third and final, the witnesses should be as objective as possible. You're not there to side with someone if you get asked to be in the situation. Usually, you're going to be tempted to side with the person who asks you to come and confront someone else's sin. 
That's, that's going to be your tendency. Beware of that tendency. You're to be objective. Question number eight. What do we do when all other efforts have failed? Okay, you've gone one-on-one. -on -one. That's failed. You've gone to stage number two. You, you, you asked somebody else in the congregation who's spiritual to go with you. That failed. What's the next stage? What do we do when all other efforts have failed? Well, let me say this, that Matthew 18 addresses that as well. Sadly, most problems in the church, though, can be solved if we would just be faithful in the application of the principles that we see here in Matthew 18. But often we don't do that. Sometimes the leadership of the church and even the body as a whole needs to become involved when all other efforts have failed. Jesus describes the role of the church here in verse 17. Look what Jesus says in verse 17. If he refuses to hear them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So those words, that phrase there, neglect to hear them, that's actually indicating here that the offender is, is being stubborn. He's, he's being rebellious. The offender is unwilling to deal with the problem. And so if this unfortunate refusal takes place in a private confrontation, then Jesus says to go on to the third stage, which is to tell it to the church. By the way, let me just say this. If, if, if you don't take every stage seriously and go as far as needed, then you are being disobedient. Okay, this, this is a command. This isn't an option. Okay? Your tendency, though, is, I know what your tendency is because you have the same tendency I do. I don't like excommunication. I've, I've been in that process. It's not nice. Usually it doesn't end nice. Praise God, there has been a couple situations I can think of where the person was excommunicated from the church, they, they eventually did repent and, and came back and became a church member again. But it, and so, so what's going to happen is you confront someone one-on-one -on -one and it doesn't go well, you're going to be tempted to disobey God by not going to the next stage. And then if you happen to take the one or two more with you and that doesn't go well, then you're going to be tempted to not take it to the church. You realize that's going to be the temptation. Be aware. But if you, if you don't keep going, then you're disobeying God. Because Jesus says that we are, are to tell the problem to the church. By the way, the Greek term there for church is the Greek word ekklesia, which, by the way, in the Bible always refers to the whole body of believers. Always. Always the whole body of believers. So it's pretty clear that Jesus intends here for the congregation to know about the sin. But they're only to know if you followed the first two stages. There are some benefits, okay? So that's question number nine. What are the benefits of this wider confrontation? Because some people lose sight of the big picture here, and they say, well, man, I don't want to go there. Well, there's benefits, okay? There are benefits if we go to the church with the sin. The most important reason every church should practice church discipline is because we're being obedient to the Bible and God. That's the most important reason. But let me give you some, some benefits. Number one, telling the church is good for those who sin. If, if, 
if there's no increased confrontation here, what happens to the person who sinned? Are they going to repent? No, they're probably going to stay in the biggest problem they have, right? They're going to stay in their sin. Their sin's not going to be dealt with. They're not going to change, most likely. So we need to increase the confrontation here so that we, they can deal with their sin. But this pressure from the church body is, is often used by the Lord to bring repentance and forgiveness into this person's life. This is God's prescribed plan for dealing with sin. We need it. We, we ourselves should long for this in our own lives. By the way, okay, you need to have a good attitude when someone comes to you. You should, you should thank that brother or sister for confronting you in love. Because they're helping you. They're loving you. To tell the church, by telling the church is good for those who sin. And second of all, telling the church is good for the church itself. In the process, what's going to happen is the whole congregation, we as believers are going to be challenged toward our own personal purity with God. In fact, we see this idea in 1 Timothy 5, 20. It says this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. It's a good thing. What do we do when a sinning brother or sister will not listen to the church? Okay? Well, here comes stage number four. What do you do when that person won't even listen to the church? Jesus says, we are to treat that person as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's what it says there, right? The end of verse 17. Let him be to you like a heathen or a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, those, those were kinds of people to whom the Jews had no social or religious interaction. They didn't want anything to do with them. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is basically saying to us, those who continue in sin after repeated confrontation, after the various steps have been followed, Jesus says, number one, you put them out of the fellowship of the church. Put them out of the fellowship of the church. Number two, they should be removed from membership with a public announcement so that everybody in the church knows this person is to be treated as an unbeliever. And number three, no longer that, should that person be allowed to participate in Lord's Supper or communion or whatever you want to call it. Okay? They're excluded from one of the means of grace that God has given to us as a congregation. And so, by the way, if, if I ever ask you to distribute Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper, and you see someone who has been excommunicated from the church, that person should be skipped. Okay? That's what should happen. And then number four, the remaining members should be instructed to treat that person as an unbeliever. By the way, that doesn't mean that they can't come to a church service. Okay? Unbelievers are welcome to come here. But if they do come here, what do you do with an unbeliever? You witness to them. You give them the gospel, don't you? You evangelize that person. So if someone who has professed to be a believer and has been excommunicated, they've gone through all the stages... You're to evangelize that person, give them the gospel, tell them to repent of their sin. Okay? God says you don't eat with that person, you don't invite them over your house and be friendly with them. 
for the sake of just chit-chatting like nothing's wrong in their life. God says you, you treat them like they're an unbeliever. You evangelize them, you witness to them, you give them the gospel, you call them to repentance. All right, our last question is this. What's the conclusion of the whole matter? Well, Jesus concludes his discussion here in verse 18 in a very interesting way. Look what verse 18 says. Jesus says in verse 18, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again I say to you that if two, or, if, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So when we look at verse 18, we see here that when we're following these various stages of church discipline, we're actually acting on God's behalf with His approval. So every time you confront somebody, you have God's authority behind you for doing that. And if this ever has to go to the church, we have God's approval and God's authority for doing that. We must or we're living in disobedience to God. And so, when our Lord's procedures followed correctly, guess what? The, the decisions of the church are actually corresponding to the decisions of heaven itself. That's what God, Jesus is saying here. In fact, I want you to see what John Calvin said in his excellent work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. I quote... And by the way, notice the, the following warning here that was issued by John Calvin as he alludes to the whole process of confrontation in church discipline. He says, I quote, If no society or even a moderate family can be kept in a right state without discipline, much more necessary is it in the church whose state ought to be the best order possible. Hence, as the saving doctrine of Christ is the life of the church, so discipline is as it were its sinews. For to it is owing that the members of the body adhere together each in its own place. Wherefore, all who either wish that discipline were abolished or who impede the restoration of it, whether they do this of design or thoughtlessness, certainly aim at the complete devastation of the church. Do you see how important this is? Do you see how deadly this is if we do not do this? My friends, the Reformers thought deeply about this subject because they needed to know what was the true church. What did the true church look like? Because the false church was everywhere. So what does the true church look like? They actually came up with three marks of the true church, and church discipline was one of them. The church does not practice church discipline. It is not a true church. That's how important this is. If we do not do this, then we are not a church. We need to stop playing church and, get, and become a church if we do not do this. Now, having said that, remember I said there was two aspects of discipline. Okay? Please do not think of church discipline as only the last stage, kicking someone out of the fellowship, otherwise called excommunication. That's corrective discipline. But my friends, if we are loving one another 
and we're obeying all the other one another commands of Scripture, we probably won't get to the last stage. Because if we love one another, then we are going to have formative discipline going on a regular basis every week. And we will be helping one another, edifying and encouraging one another, pointing out our sins and saying, you know what? Hey, brother, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, Greg's going to walk up to me, and Greg's going to say, you know, you know, dear brother, I see some sin in your life. And Greg's going to say, I'm, I'm the greatest sinner I know, but I see sin in your life. And I'm going to love Greg. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, brother, thank you for loving me enough to address the sin in my life. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and I will repent of my sin. And I, will, and I will be thinking, I'm the greatest sinner I know. I'm not going to blame shift like Adam and Eve did and so many other people do and say, well, but yeah, but that other person in the congregation, you know, they're doing the same thing I'm doing, or they're worse than me. My friends, if we are obeying the one another commands and loving one another, we'll be more healthy for it. And we'll never actually need to go to the corrective discipline stage. You see what I'm saying? Every healthy church is involved in formative discipline. Also, let me also state, every healthy church is involved in corrective discipline as well. Okay, Hopefully we won't have to do that. But let me encourage you, if we ever have to get to that stage, may you obey God. Don't fight the leadership. Don't fight one another on this issue. And say, that's not loving. No, my friends. Remember, God says, whom he loves, he disciplines. He chastens the sons whom he loves. So don't think it's unloving. It's the most loving thing we could do. So rather than tearing down our church, and there's two two ways we can tear down our church. We can ignore problems and, 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 you know, kind of sweep them under the rug and pretend they go away which they don't. Or we can handle them in a worldly manner and we can tear the church down by doing both of those or we can build up the church by confronting one another in love. My friends, I'm calling you to obey what Jesus says here. May God give us the grace to confront one another in love. Let's pray.